Hi there. Yeah, hello there. And welcome back to Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, the podcast where we break down the movie American Splendor scene by scene, talk about Harvey Picar, and discuss the joys and challenges of being professional cartoonists. I'm Josh Newfeld of joshnewfeld.com. And I'm Dean Haspiel of deanhaspiel.com. And today we're doing episode 17 of American Splendor, of our first season of Scene by Scene. And this episode starts at minute 41, second 38, and ends at minute 44, second 31. So it begins with Joyce arriving by train, and it ends with a interesting date at a family restaurant. In fact, when we first thought about breaking down the movie... This scene actually goes uh, a little over seven minutes, and we've decided today to break it in half because there's so much rich stuff that does happen and sparks a lot of questions and, and discussion. So True, true. The source material for this part of this scene is some of the same source material from the previous episode, if I'm correct. Yes. Uh, from American Splendor number 10 that came out in 1985 from a story called A Marriage Album drawn by Val Myrick. Yes, and we'll get to what portion of that once I describe the scene. This scene starts with a train arriving into Cleveland. Happy jazz music plays as Joyce, as portrayed by Hope Davis, enters the station looking, I'd say she looks seasick, as if she was experiencing motion sickness and she looks ill. Yeah, you know? or definitely disgruntled in some way, which right. is a theme in this film. Exactly. So... She looks around for Hari Pekar, and what happens is she sees different iterations, different versions of his cartoon character. Uh, the first one she sees actually belches and scratches his chest. He looks kind of like the way R. Crumb would draw him, disheveled, you know, lots of squiggly lines and cross-hatching, and he looks filthy and dirty with holes in his shirt and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And then she hears a whistle, and she glances over to what would be like a straight-laced cartoon version of Harvey Pekar. Uh, reading a book and he smiles at her. Do you recall who, what version you thought that was in, in terms of the Picar lexicon of artists? Yeah, well, in the script, it actually says that it's the Gary Dumb version. It's the Gary Dumb, and it looks like the Gary Dumb version. So, and then, so he's reading a book and she smiles at her. She smiles back and then she hears a clearing of, a, of the throat and she looks over to see, dare I say, a sexy cartoon version of Harvey swinging his arm and leg. The three versions of Harvey greeting her, you know, with a burp, a whistle, and a cough. And it's very funny. And, it, you know, it, it plays with the whole, you know, the animated slash cartoon comics versions of Harvey because that's what she knows. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't even think she's ever seen Harvey. Uh, finally, that's a good point. Like, the, he was not on David Letterman yet. That's and right. There, no photos. There were no photos. So she's yeah. basing what she knows on these different versions of him. Finally, the real Harvey Picar shows up as portrayed by Paul Giamatti. And he sidles up Him to Joyce. Him again? <laughs> he sidles up to Joyce, very hesitant, almost in an anti-chivalrous way. Like, he's not making any offerings. He's, he's kind of moping, looking down, barely looking at her. When he does, he establishes that, uh, that it is, this is Joyce and he is Harvey, only to first admit that he has had a vasectomy and then wanders away. <laughs> What is going on? One of the here? best opening lines ever. Yeah, and I believe I think that is basically what happened. You know, I know that this is comedy and you know mixed with drama to to you know fictionalize a story, uh, a true story. But I think that happened. 
you know? I was wondering that, like, whether he had done a comic about him having a vasectomy earlier. I, I, feel I think like it came up later when they when they adopt uh, Danielle right. and all that, but right. Right. I, I don't know. I, I looked around and I couldn't find anything specifically. But it's that. funny because it also sets up stuff for later on in the movie, as, sure. we, as you mentioned. Yeah. But I do like the idea that he's already in the relationship, even though he just physically met her. Mm-hmm. Uh, sizes her up. She kind of has to size him up. Like, this is what the real Harvey looks like. Right. And we can't have babies. <laughs> you know, like, we're going to go right there. Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. they haven't even, he hasn't even courted her in any, you know, real way, which, right. of course, is the second half of the scene. Right. But the second half of the scene starts with the scene transitions from this very funny moment of him walking away, not even helping her with her bags or anything, into Joyce and Harvey sitting in, like, a family-style restaurant. Joyce is surprised that Harvey would eat in such a place and he barks no I, I would never eat here I thought you would like this place you know like mm-hmm. and so he he totally got her wrong she's getting him wrong right but actually they're kind of getting each other right in a way because they're calling each other out on stuff you know and they both agree that this is not the place that either of them would ever go exactly but and then, there they are anyway and then they are because well he brought her there and as they yeah. peruse the menu uh Harvey admits he's a vegetarian well, sort of, as he sorta, says. So he says a lot of trying. meat on this menu. Yeah. And, and it's, it's <laughs> interesting to me, like, I think that's the first and only time that they discuss food in that way, you know? And I was like, and it made me wonder, and we'll we'll talk about this in a little while, but like, what made Harvey a vegetarian, you know? His pet cat. Oh, his pet cat, Inky. He says, ever since right. I got a pet cat, I've been having trouble with the idea of eating animals. Right, because he's now humanized them and, and whatnot. And so yeah. he can't. Okay, that's true. He did say that. Uh, I know that I have two cats and I eat meat often. <laughs> and cats <laughs> eat meat. So, and cats yeah. eat meat. So, we can all anyway, do it together. <clears throat> Joyce says she identifies with PETA and organi- organizations like that, but professes that she's a self diagnosed anemic. And PETA is the people for the ethical treatment of animals. Of animals, yes. that's right. And Thank they you. don't like fur, and right. vege- they're, they're vegetarians. Right. I don't like fur either, unless I'm a caveman and I need to Right, know, yeah, which warm. happens. Some, on Friday nights, sometimes I'm a caveman. <laughs> but uh, then Joyce, she says she has a lot of borderline... Health uh, disorders. Di- disorders that limits her politically when it comes to eating. And it's 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 all very earnest, but also very funny. Yes. It's like, she, it's almost like they're talking about the things that limit them, but also that recommends them. But also, it's also very difficult to like date someone like that, you know? Like, it's just like this weird serpentine into authenticity, you know, between each other. Yes. And then, of course, Harvey kind of looks at her and says, he's like, I think you're a sick woman. Yes. <laughs> And he seems really impressed by that. He is impressed fact, by yeah. that. Like, he likes that. <laughs> yeah. And then this is where we're going to cut off for the, for this episode of the podcast. Yeah. Because it's going to transition to another very funny part of their first date when he takes her home. Right. But uh, did you notice, so you were talking about the sound effects and stuff in right. the, at the beginning when they meet each other. Did you notice the the last sound effect, like, right before the scene cuts out? No. Is a fork drops on the floor You're in the kidding. restaurant. <laughs> and then the waitress comes up and That's right. introduces herself. That's but right. I love that this That's fork right. drops. No, I mean, there's lots of funny bits happening constantly. Yes. And the filmmakers were brilliant at being able to Even see Even just things. the sound design sort yeah, of stuff. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's basically the plot of this first half of the scene. 
And uh, I want to know if you had any thoughts about the performances or anything they were saying or... Well, yeah, just to get back to that opening scene when she arrives. So in the original comic, the marriage album story, she arrives by plane. She's shown like wondering uh, which version of Harvey she's going to see, which she had talked about in the previous episode when she said, you know, sometimes you look like a a hairy ape. Sometimes you look like a younger Brando with wavy, stinky lines. And that was when he said, oh, I'm an active guy when he was clipping his toenails. So this is a callback sort of to that moment in the movie and also in the comic, because in the comic we see her in the plane with all these different versions of Harvey that have been drawn by other artists. And yeah, there's, actually... there's eight versions of her, you know, thinking about, well, which one am I going to see? Right. What does he really look like? Is he the Crumb version? Is he the Val Myrick version? Right. The, the Sue Cave? Gary like, Shamray. So many different versions already to date. Mm-hmm. And all I could think about when I'm looking at this page right now, in 1985, I was an assistant to Howard Chaikin, Walt Simonson, Bill Sienkiewicz. And I did a lot of cutting and pasting, you know, uh-huh. actual Physically scissors, cutting, yeah. you know, and exacto knives and glue. Mm-hmm. And, put it, and I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, that this wasn't drawn by Val. It does look like the actual different versions of the artist, you know, Xerox, clearly. Right. And then cut up and it did a really good job of mashing them up together. If this is a cut and paste job, which it probably was because we didn't have Photoshop, mm-hmm. you know. So I did look at it from a technical point of view as right now. As That's a really good point. Yeah. yeah. I, I did my share of that too. In fact, I don't know if you remember, but I spent one day or maybe two at Upstart mm-hmm. working with Howard on an American flag issue. Oh, funny. Because he needed extra people that day. Probably so, get the book out, you know, the monthly book out uh, yeah. the door. Yeah. So no, I, I remember you were there a couple cutting times. Cutting and pasting and That's drawing right. even some background stuff. In. I think they even had their own Xerox machine, which impressed me. Yes. <laughs> that was impressive back then. I love that. Yeah. And I remember that one of the reasons why they had that as well is because Howard and Walter and, and a bunch of those guys, that's when you would letter the pages, right? Actually have letterers lettering on, right. you know, whereas today... With Ken Brusenek, right? Was Ken Brusenek was on, uh, on, on American Thor, Flag. On American John Flag. Workman was on Thor. Right. Two great letterers. Fantastic. And I remember they would send layouts or rough pencils mm-hmm. and then indicate where the words would go. Right. And then come back. And the first thing we did was to make sure that the where the lettering was was erased perfectly, like mm-hmm. any pencils, and then Xerox that several times in case we spilled ink or something right. messed up. Uh-huh. Then we would have the, then we'd have to like be able to cut and paste the actual lettering back onto the mistake right. area, right. you know, kind of thing. It was always a, like a safety huh. kind of thing. Yeah, and like nowadays, you know, I've drawn a lot of comics for uh, Marvel and DC and Archie and, and whatnot and franchise comics. And they letter it digitally, mm-hmm. and and I, you feel like you're drawing a lot of extra stuff that gets yes. covered up, yes. and you're also guesstimating mm-hmm. because two things: either you're slave to the script as it's currently written, if there is a script, sometimes it's just a plot you're drawing, you don't know what the words are going to be, but let's say the words are there, right? You're guessing the space and area. I'm not going to like mock letter so I can get it, you know, the spacing right. I just don't have that skill set and, and time, frankly, mm. or Worse is sometimes the writer is allowed to do an 11th hour like Hail Mary pass on the comic mm-hmm. and can change the dialogue. Sometimes might need to add dialogue or extract depending on what you've drawn. Right. You know, it's a really interesting, you know, new and the way of computers doing comics. enable you to do that. Right. Much easier. But you're right. Like that having to draw extra artwork really 
chips me off sometimes. I like I, I, since I mostly work on my own, you know, scripts and nowadays I at least know where everything's going to be. And I actually do like kind of block in the lettering and mm-hmm. then I'm like, good, I don't have to draw that part. You but know, now that, I know. And so, because you know, you're going to letter it, hand letter it. That's why you do that. Okay. So I'm not hand lettering quite as often as I used to, because I do have a font of my own lettering right. that I use, but Either way, I usually block it in just so I kind of have a scent, like really quickly in right. blue pencil, just so I have a sense of, yeah, how much real estate is right. going to be used and right. what I don't need to draw. Because I just need to, it's actually quicker for me to block that in and even do a quick hand letter job than it would be to draw in those all those right. areas that are eventually going to be covered up anyway. I know. I don't want to say the person's name because I want to respect them. And, and this is not a judgment on them. I, I kind of agree. But there was a famous inker who was working with a buddy of mine on a franchise comic and the publisher insisted on digital lettering, even though the letterer who was also an old timer was down to like letter the pencils and mm-hmm. then the inker would get it. And then ink what was still there. Right. Yeah. And the inker refused to work on any more books where he would just ink the pencils and over render and overdraw stuff that was going to be covered up digitally. Uh, he almost felt like he needed to be paid more yeah. for doing the extra well, work that nobody sees. That. Right. I totally respect that. Yeah. And he lost the job mm. because of that. So, yeah. So, anyway. so basically, the, the the mainstream franchise method now is to just draw everything and it'll all be covered up digitally. Late. That's right. I mean, um, unless you're the artist that's also somehow lettering, which is very rare in the assembly yeah. line version of, of franchise comics these days. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're going to draw a lot of extra stuff. Wow. And that's why I think even... If you have an eagle eye for it, you can also identify that when you're reading the comic that this looks like there's a little too much space here or there wasn't enough space, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes, sure. depending. You yeah. Know? But getting back to this scene where Joyce is imagining all these different versions of, of Harvey that we do end up seeing in the scene itself. Right. It's interesting because the script calls it out and says that the first version is a crumb version, the one who's scratching himself. The second one is Gary Dumb. Right. And the third one was supposed to be Drew Friedman, which is interesting. Because Drew Friedman had done a few uh, American Splendors stories but that version in the that actually ends up in the finished film does not look like it because for me. those of you who don't know drew friedman is known for like ultra realistic right heavily cross-hatched and detailed drawings not really exaggerated at all like maybe just like heads are bigger a little bit right. sometimes but right. that version of the harvey that's got his legs crossed and uh the sexy harvey the sexy harvey <laughs> definitely doesn't look true friedman and then the other major difference is both in the script and in the original comic joyce arrives by plane at, a, at an airport which right. i assume is what actually happened but in the movie they ended up shooting it that she arrived by train maybe it was a budgetary thing yeah i mean it and i have really to say matter. that train station looks really fake like it looks totally like a set like, oh did it yeah with the like all the letters of the same size for everything and it just has a very oh, i didn't notice like, that kind of antiseptic you know sure. tv show sort of feel sure. about it which is fine like right. it fits kind of the the rhythm of the of right. the scene anyway and just to give a heads up the person who animated those various harveys scary lieb right Gary Lieb and John Kuramoto, and I think uh, Doug Allen also helped. So Gary Lieb's studio sort of organized all of the animated sequences. And so maybe that third Harvey that maybe in the script was supposed to be a Drew Friedman, but it looked more like a Joe Zabel. Yeah, it looked more Zabel-esque to me. But yeah, you you mentioned when they actually meet, 
it's very awkward and mm -hmm. like Harvey kind of slides in from stage left mm -hmm. and he almost feels less real than the cartoon versions that we had seen before. Just the way he comes on and he doesn't, it's like their eye lines don't match. He never looks her in the eye and there's that weird, awkward handshake. It's the same. Oh, yeah. you know what it reminds me of? His what? meeting with Crumb. Hit the first time he met Crumb in the in the with the records uh -huh. at the the yard sale, this he kind of sizes them up. It's yeah. confrontational. He's sizing them right. up. But in this case, it makes sense. They're both sizing each other up. You know. Well, like, he, she's a little kinder. Yes. <laughs> forgiving, I would. Yeah, say. Yeah, but that's it. Like I can't read. Like fortunately, we've seen the you know the movie up to this point already. But right. if you just saw this scene totally out of context, and you're like, these are two people meeting for the first time, you would think he does not is not happy about what he has seen. <laughs> <laughs> right but yet the whole rest of the scene I plays out that. that he's I, into her no i see i i read it more that he's nervous that he's just nervous he's just nervous he's shy and when he gets nervous and shy having drawn his origin story the quitter mm -hmm. about how he behaves towards stuff he kind of takes a, an abrasive kind of stance right when either he feels like he's not good at something right or he's it's like his shyness it's but like his shyness comes out this as aggressive version of sorry have we seen this version of harvey picar in this movie before yes. a in shy the, version oh a shy you mean like well what's funny is because they're what leads up to the meeting is a very almost confident harvey you know right. and joyce exactly. talking about anything and everything and yeah. that's how they connect and they're both kind of experienced people you know she's been married once before he's been married a couple of times before i know what it is he's he, because of the way the scene transitions mm -hmm. he's about to take her to his to, to he's all about authenticity right so i think he's decided to turn that corner decide i'm not gonna play any games i am what i am mm -hmm. and uh there's a very good chance she's not going to want to stick around mm, so there's almost like a surprise that each moment she continues sticking around that he's like wow it's not like he's testing her uh -huh. he's challenging her right you know and so that's where that's that's leading up to when is this going to fail when is she going to just run away screaming from sort of him. a self-perpetuating story like a self-fulfilling kind basically, of basically self of disaster right. and failure you know in a way so one thing that's really interesting though the way that the directors chose to take this scene f moving forward because the scenes that follow later on like the rest of their date the right. rest of this episode and the next episode are not anything i'd ever seen written about or made into a comic before i feel like it was fabricated for the purpose of the of the film but in the original comic when they meet at the airport they give each other a hug right away mm -hmm. it's like this culmination of like oh you are the person i've been talking to you know and, and what's also kind of beautiful about the comic book version is you know harvey likes to write and he's verbose yes there are no words on this page right you know it's, it's true and he's letting you interpret it in fact, well, remember Joyce co-wrote this story with him, that's so true. it that's might have true. been to her taking the lead there. That's right, like a good editorial choice of like, well, on the one hand, everybody, unless there was something to say, everybody understands that a first meeting can be interpreted any in so many different ways. Yes, and they left it open that way. Yes, you know, and so. it's the story that kind of becomes the legend of the of the relationship that you right. talk about forever and ever afterwards remember right. when we first met and right. you know this weird funny thing happened that's right and there's a moment there's a detail in the comic that's not in the movie 
where Harvey is looking at what looks like a couple of pictures, and I presume that's him looking at different pictures of Joyce to know what she right. looks like to pick her up there. Because it seems like when she does emerge from the gate, he knows who she knows is exactly right away. Who she is. Because she's looking for him, right. sees the different cartoon versions, but where is he? Mm-hmm. And he literally appears, like, right. like he, he said, from the side. He comes from off-panel. Yeah, 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 from off-panel. That's right. um, and it was funny, too, like, uh, Hope Davis's acting is very subtle in that opening scene where, I mean, where she's has these mini, these micro reactions to each version of Harvey that she's seen. So she seems a little scared of the crumb version. She seems pretty into the straight-laced one and then maybe a little intimidated by the third one. And then the real Harvey appears and she looks at him for a quick second and then decides, okay, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. I'll I'll stay, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's very funny. A couple of questions before we get into our own like dating, blind dating kind of subject wait you and i dating oh never oh. that never happened we met uh i was too young but we're still courting each other <laughs> true after all these years <laughs> the world's longest courtship a couple of questions regarding comics have you ever read any romance comics proper and or have you read any good comics about dating oh romance i mean there you know there are some comics that are great romances but i meant actual remember they would sell romance yeah comics. romance comics you know apparently to girls or women right but you no, know they were boys could, and men could stream, read them too sure right? very popular in the 50s and 60s and then they just like just all died out at once right sort of in the late 60s in fact you know who started that genre the comic book versions oh it was uh kirby right joe simon and jack kirby yeah launched that they, he did they everything. launched everything they started everything, everything. So, but you never read any of those. They didn't appeal to you, I don't think. I mean, the closest would be Archie, I guess, because okay. there's always a continual dating theme the to those. Yeah, the love triangle. But no, I never really, I mean, they weren't in existence really when I started reading comics mm-hmm. anymore. And if I did come across them, they seemed really lame. Corny, soap opera yeah, type. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Just like so much from a different era, right. you know? Right. And it was always about the man. If you think about it, like it was a, how from to a appeal to the man, view, yeah, to how do you appeal to him, how, how do I make him stop seeing the other woman, mm-hmm. or am I the other woman? Yeah. I mean, it's all the same stuff, yeah. you know? I guess Lois Lane, uh, the Lois Lane comic Girl book. Reporter. Yeah, which I read, no, it was Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, Oh, was the okay. title of the comic. Okay. But yeah, it was about her as, uh, you know, as her own character, but a lot of it was about her dating of Superman. It, it could have been a comic that was about her adventures as a reporter and like showing her independence and all that. But I right. think a lot of it, it was essentially a, a romance superhero comic. Right, right. And she never figured, she's like the best reporter, best journalist. She can't <laughs> figure, out. figure out. Those glasses she, those... were so incredibly powerful. <laughs> it, Clark Kent, there's no way he could be Superman. No. That's, ever. That's the crazy Take idea. Take off the glasses. Superman, oh my God. <laughs> It's Superman. But where'd Clark go? That's so great. Um, so, no. any any comic book you remember, like a great romantic scene, or you know, in a graphic novel, or a B story in, inside of an A so story. The, the one that comes to mind that I often think of and is very embarrassing is is Teen Titans. Um, That's great. Starfire and New Teen Robin. Titans. Yeah, Starfire and Their Robin. Their relationship was. I was very in, engaged with all of the ups yeah, and downs man. of that. Marv Wolfman and uh, George Perez. I mean, and yes. and the and the other comic because that was kind of spawned. Well, that's not fair to say it. It came out around the same time that X Men, mm-hmm. uh, the Uncanny X Men. So right, so the Jean Grey and uh, Cyclops and Wolverine love triangle. Triangle, yeah. that's right. I yeah. mean, that to me is the crux of what makes great 
stories. Is a, is a triangle? It, no. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> or an octagon. Or, or, the, or the third, you know, person could be the conflict, mm-hmm. the obstacle, you know. I remember, I mean, Jean Grey becomes Phoenix and then Dark Phoenix. And that was tragic when, yes. spoiler, she dies. Right. You know, for all those years. That was, that was, I remember when that issue came out, X-Men number 137. Yes. Everybody was devastated by that, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway. Little did they know that she was a clone and that she'd come back to life and all of this other crazy stuff. And it started the whole thing of no characters ever actually dead. And they all come back. Gwen Stacy. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are a few characters that have stayed dead. Uncle Ben. Has he? I don't even know. He has stayed dead. Oh, good for I him. I think he's the only yeah. one who stayed Let dead. Let him rest, you yeah. know, R.I.P. Yeah. So what about you? I mean, a lot of your comics you know, revolve around romance. Yes. Um, but and your your portrayal of romance is is so is 180 degrees different from what we are seeing unfolding here. That's true. It's it's more cosmic, galactic, <laughs> absurd, abstracted, you know, yeah. romance. Actually I want to talk about that next episode sure. because that's when the the marriage album comic actually talks about that. Right. And it relates more to what happens in sure. the next episode. But I'd love to sure. hear your thoughts and and your you know your approach to writing romance i have two more questions uh, before we dive into some blind date type stuff okay but just one other thing i just wanted to note that the restaurant that they are in is an actual restaurant it's called jean's place to dine Mm. in cleveland ohio Mm. so they allowed them to use that as a shooting location it looks like an old italian restaurant to me yeah it has a little bit of the italian thing it also has a little of the tgi friday office space restaurant you remember the restaurant in office i assume you saw office space space, so you know the whole thing where they're wearing all the buttons and all the the flare like how much flare do you have i feel like there's a a little shout out to that sure. whole environment at that place with the plastic menus yep. and all that sort of stuff. Yep. But yeah, I also just loved, you mentioned, you know, the little repartee they have where first he's trying to impress her and she, and then he's like, should we go? And she's like, no, what does it matter? Who cares? You right. know, it's like their date is just going so off the rails, I know. but yet they both seem to think it's fine. You well, know? because they're finding each other through right, their, right. Uh, through the things it? they both hate. They have presumptions, mm-hmm. you know, of what, they both have presumptions of what makes a good date. Right. But they're both totally wrong about it because really what makes a good date is the authenticity of the two of them together. That's right? a really good point. I mean, yeah. I mean, in the end, it's not about like whether you order the right bottle of wine or you whether wearing? you're romantic or anything. It's, it's like, and, are, yeah. are you soulmates? And I think that's kind of what is coming across here is it doesn't, they, they're skipping all of the normal courtship rituals of being right. nice to each other right. and doing things for each other. And they're just assessing like, this is somebody who I could spend the rest of my life with. Right. right. And, yeah. In I, a way. I think you said it, that really it, well. It's, well, thank Wait, you. I just said it. But you repeated but no, but me. You, yes, you. You interpreted my you genius. Sparked me exactly. And you made it easy for the ears. Yes. <laughs> uh, a friend, uh, not a friend of mine, but I mean someone I know, an acquaintance who's an editor of comics, uh, and I might have brought this up in one of the podcasts. But nobody ever thought this guy was ever going to get married. And when he finally told people, "I'm getting married," they're like, "How? You? You're the last guy that was ever." In? He's like, "What made you decide?" He's like. Oh, I could tolerate her. Mm-hmm. I was like, tolerate? What are you mm-hmm. talking about? He's like, well, when you love someone, you know, everything's great and you love them and you're happy. And everything. But when it, when it gets ugly and yes. bad, you know, that's when people usually split, right? Yeah. Like, I can't do this. Right. But when you realize... The intensity of those emotions. That's right. And when you realize he could tolerate that mm-hmm. is when he knew he would could stay with that. 
Interesting. And I thought at first, I was like, sounds really obnoxious. Yeah. But he's not totally wrong either, you know? And so so are they happily married now? I I presume. Okay. I haven't talked to him in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My my next question real quick is, are you a vegetarian? Me, no. I I was brought up as a vegetarian by my single mother. And is she still a vegetarian? She would never order or cook meat on her own, but when we all go out, she often partakes of others' she meat dishes. Does she have a dishes. bite or order a meal of meat? I think she might. She never liked red meat, but I think, she, well, she definitely ate seafood and was fish. It, it was political, right? The, her stance? Political and health related. It okay. was, you know, during the period when people were starting to really think about what ingredients went into food and health consciousness and you know that whole hippie movement and also uh you know industrialized farming and all that sort of stuff so she was very attuned to all of that right Right. but yeah i think i mean it's it's not even a a a question but the fact that i was forced as to be a vegetarian made me forever a a A carnivore yeah you became you became rebellious yeah i um i did not grow up a vegetarian we had meat all the time i do sometimes kind of I understand Harvey's uh, stance of, you know, when you befriend the... Well, I, I don't eat but cats. But we don't eat cats. Right. But, you know, if I hung out with a cow and you told me I was going to eat it later, I might not want to eat the cow. I might I might right. want to save the cow. You know its name and everything. You know, sure. the minute you make some kind of contact, mm-hmm. you know, um, I love animals. So, you know, it, you know, if you told me you could only eat meat if you killed it and prepared it, yeah, it'd be I would not eat meat sure. unless it was like I had to survive only on meat for some reason, you right. know? But so, fortunately, meat comes packaged in little plastic containers. Yeah, right? That's and, how meat comes. You know, that's, that's meat. So that, <laughs> I don't know where it like. started before that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'm not a vegetarian. I've been around vegetarians. I think also the thing that happened to me as a child is two things. I was introduced to fish through Mrs. Paul's frozen fish sticks. Oh, yeah. Good which stuff. were disgusting. But with the, the tartar sauce. Disgusting. <laughs> disgusting. And the minute you add ketchup on anything, it just becomes ketchup. Yes. All right. The food. So I was not. My a daughter f- prescribes to that theory. I'm sure. <laughs> and I do like my a little bit of ketchup on stuff, you know, like a hamburger sure. or whatever. On the, uh, on the correct things. That's right. Uh, so I became allergic to fish, even though I've worked in restaurants and I've had really delicious fish. I don't really eat fish. Yeah, I'm not much of a fish, not much of a water meat eater. Water meat? Water uh, meat. They call that water meat. That's not right. Jesus. Just like when they make like brock, uh, uh, meat-shaped broccoli or meat-shaped vegetables, it's like, Wait, it's not meat. I haven't heard of that. Oh, no, I've seen Oh, you like, mean like vegan-type food? Or tofurkey, whatever the hell. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, like, yeah. just make it a block of tofu or something, right. you know? Don't, don't try to pretend it's something else. the animal you don't want to eat. Right, that's <laughs> weird. Why don't you make it your friend's face or something instead? <laughs> but Tonight but I, we're eating Sam for dinner. <laughs> it's tofu Sam. It's tofu Sam. I'm telling you, someone's going to take that idea. <laughs> Trademark, uh, Trademark, scene by scene with Josh and Dean, twenty nineteen. So, also, I was not a big fan of vegetables because sometimes you know, like Del Monte's, like string beans or yeah, if you're not food, eating fresh. You need fresh, yeah. And then later on, I would come to eat fresh because you know we live in a big city. You go to the grocery store, you get canned food a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And, and not to bash my mother or father's cooking, I, I loved most of the cooking, but you know, like Mrs. Paul's fish sticks and canned vegetables, you you, you grow up not wanting to eat fish and vegetables, yeah. But then later on. You discover raw vegetables and what you can do with it, mm-hmm. and suddenly it's delicious. And and listen, garlic is vegetables' best friend. Yes, I'll say that right now. 
So onions are good too. Onions are great. All right. So then my next question is, have you ever self-diagnosed anything? Oh, I do a lot of self-diagnosis of, I don't need to see a doctor about this. This is fine. I'm just going to suffer and hopefully it'll get better. Like you mean I, like a basketball injury? Yeah, like type basketball thing? injuries okay. or even slight so anything, various aches, types of ailments. Anything and that stuff. aches in, in like a, a muscle or or a skeletal aspect yeah. or bruising. But what about like stomach stuff or head stuff? Uh, you mean like neuroses and psychosis? Well, neuroses is there's two. There's the there's a headache, mm. and then there's what your mind is thinking. Right. <laughs> Um, well, I've been through enough therapy that I kind of have a handle on, on what disorders I suffer from, but, well, um, lucky, lucky you, Josh, <laughs> lucky you, but no, I don't have, what is it that a lot of like hypochondriacs have? They have like the, you know, there's this manual of disorders yeah. and stuff that people have and that they refer to, or there's the internet now too. I avoid all of that sort of stuff because I feel like it just leads you down dangerous paths. Well, the I, rabbit I, hole, of, it could take you to places you had yeah, no idea. I don't want to be a hypochondriac. I've, right. I've been around and, and in relationships with people. I'm not saying any gender specifically. People who've been on the side of hypochondria and yeah. get nervous about any little thing that mm -hmm. afflicts them mm -hmm. momentarily enough that I don't want to ever go down that path. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm probably more the opposite. But I, and I guess therapy has helped you because I would, I would say that you could maybe identify some of my problems in my work, but I don't know if I could identify any of your problems in your work. Well, I keep it all very close to the vest, you know. But you know what it is. No, I don't know what it is. Oh, okay. But you know what not to do? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> How not to behave? I try my best. Right. Have I ever self-diagnosed anything? I'm sure I have to a certain extent. I feel like I'm diagnosing other people all the time, in my head at least. Mm -hmm. And I think as you get older and you've been around people enough that, you know, you probably have your own idea, you know. Right. I, I feel like you're hearkening to a future scene where um, Joyce sort of uh, diagnoses I, right. a number of different You're right. And folks. we'll get to that. Yeah. So the thing I was referring to was the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Well, I didn't I know about that until just now. And now I know about it. And I'm upset. <laughs> it means I may look at I think it. there's more... I think there's more than just mental disorders. There's it's for all sorts of things. Sure. But yeah, I I'm definitely you know Apple Day keeps the doctor away sure. and try not to dwell on things. But it's funny you were, I was having a like some digital issue the other day and you helped me out and you're like, well, why don't you just go on the internet and just there's YouTube videos for everything. Yeah. And like I just didn't want to. I just wanted you to help me. You know, like I didn't want to do <laughs> I it. I could tell that, which is why I was trying <laughs> like, to make it why don't as you difficult do it, as Dean? possible. But I do feel people do that all the time for medical and mental yeah. stuff. Here's the and YouTube video for two minutes. I don't feel it's helpful. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. So can I ask you about Hope Davis? Uh, or do you want to talk about her? I mean, I would I love feel to talk like... about Hope Davis. I, I, I mean, I think this is the first time I, I knew about her was through this movie. I know she had done another movie that I really she enjoyed. She had been in uh, About Schmidt, the Jack Nicholson film. Oh, I don't remember she her. She plays in that. his daughter. Oh, okay. His character's daughter in that film, okay. and that was just before this one. 
I just wanted to give her a shout out because she, you know, she this is her first major scene. I guess we saw her in the previous scene, but it was a lot more back and forth with Harvey right. separately. And here they are acting together. And right. now she's going to become basically a co-protagonist of this film. Right. And she got a lot of acclaim for this role. She was awarded a New York Film Critic Circle Award, and she was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress for mm. this movie. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, like you, I didn't know much about her, but I feel like anytime anyone mentions her name, everyone's like, oh, yeah, Hope Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, she's done a lot of theater, indie film, and TV, but I have to say I haven't seen a ton of stuff with her in it. So You'll see her in stuff, and she's usually, I think, I don't know if she's been the lead in a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I know last time I've seen her was in a TV show called Wayward Pines, right? which was like three years ago. Uh, I'm sure if you IMDb her, she's a working actress. Sure. Yeah. But you're right. She's just kind of like, I hate to say it, it might be her last. Uh, she's most known probably for this role, mm-hmm. which is a while ago. Which is a while, a while ago. Yeah. But she also does a lot of like indie stuff and theater that is, I feel like is a little bit outside of our purview. So sure. it may be that in that world, she's considered you know right. one of the greats. But just about her performance as Joyce... You know, I'm someone who knew Joyce and Harvey both before this movie came out. And I actually even collaborated with Joyce Brabner on a couple of projects again before this movie came out. And so I got a pretty good sense of of what she's like and who she is and had met her in person a few times before. So what do you think of Hope's portrayal of her? So that's the thing is I'm still like in in a sense, I kind of accept it like that's yeah, that's Joyce Brabner on screen. But there's something, you know, it's it's her own interpretation, just as you've talked about Paul Giamatti's interpretation of Harvey is not like spot on. He's not doing an impression of Harvey. He is acting, you know, he's created his own character. And I yes. feel like that is what Hope is Hope Davis does here as well. And I think that's a, that's really smart of the actors to do. Yeah. Because you don't want to ape somebody. You don't want to like, oh, you said it just the way they said it. And right. then they don't necessarily embody you know, their version, their digested version of that character that to then to, they can spit it back out at you. Right. And not be doing, you know, something that's just imitating, that's more like encapsulating, mm-hmm. you know? So. Yeah. And, and the, because we've seen this scene a couple of times, I've started to like kind of recognize and appreciate the little nuances of the way that she plays these scenes mm-hmm. that make me appreciate it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, I'm almost like, at first I was so thrown off by her hair in the movie, like the wig, which to me looks like such an obvious wig. Sure. That that was like all I was seeing was like uh, sure. the, the haircut. Sure. But now that we've seen it a couple more times, I'm, you know, I'm, now you're I'm more appreciating the more and the, the performance. Are, right. And she really is, I mean, it's a tough thing. She's coming in like halfway through this movie and ha- is a, has a very strong character and a mm. very strong personality. And the audience has to accept her as well. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough job for anyone to come in and do. And then we're going to meet another character soon, Toby Radloff, who is right. another like strong character. It's like yeah. the people that like, that Harvey met and then stayed in his life were all interesting yeah. kind of misfits, you know, in a good yes, way. Yes, that's you know? exactly the right term. And it's almost like he collected or maybe they collected him. I don't know, you know, like, and to me, that's also the beauty of this film is to kind of spotlight that, mm-hmm. you know. And did you know that Hope Davis plays another comic book character in another movie? Who? She's Tony Stark's mom in oh, the that's right. Avengers. That's right. Yeah. Or I remember that. Yes. I'm not sure if that was in Civil War or one of the Iron Man movies, but she she does play 
It might be young Captain Tony America. Might be Civil War. Because I remember right. Iron Man's father helped create Captain America. Right, right. So maybe she's in that part. And it was Bucky who I think assassinated Tony Stark. Oh, and that would parents. be in Civil War. Yeah. Yes. Everybody go see these movies. Yes. <laughs> They're great. They're little known, very little known movies made by a small company. That's right. But yeah, they're about superheroes and whatnot. And now we have a special edition to this episode of Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. An interview with comic book artist Val Mayrick, who was a key illustrator of American Splendor in the mid to late 1980s, and who illustrated the story A Marriage Album from American Splendor number 10, 1985, which describes Harvey and Joyce's courtship. We're really excited to welcome Val Mayrick, comic book artist, to the podcast, and thanks so much for being willing to answer some questions about Harvey and American Splendor and other related topics. Great. Glad to do it. Cool. I'm just going to jump right in. And I guess I just wanted to say off the bat that from my research, it appears that you worked with Harvey from the period 1984 to 1988. And you contributed to, it looks like, five issues of American Splendor with lots of stories, particularly in issues 10 and 11. And you did a bunch of covers for him as well. So... I've read that you originally were from Ohio, and then in the early 80s, I guess after you were in New York for a while, you were based in Cleveland, and is that how you came into contact with Harvey? It does seem like most of the earlier artists who worked with him were also from Cleveland. Right. He always worked with local people, people that he could work with face-to-face for the most part, except Crum, of course. Yeah, I I had been living in Cleveland uh, for about four years, and... I believe it was through another artist, uh, an illustrator uh, named Joe Zabel, who I had spent some time in art school with way back in, in the early 70s. And I, I believe it was Joe who introduced me to Harvey. Joe had been working with Harvey as well. Okay, so we actually, Dean and I both know Joe pretty well from the indie comics circuit. So that makes sense that, you know, you would have gotten that connection that way. Oh, okay, good. So Joe is still working in any comic? I kind of lost track of him about 10 years ago. I feel like we we would see him at a small press expo, SPX. I'm yeah. I'm trying to remember other venues, but... Yeah, and I think he was doing... Well, he was doing mystery comics for a while, and then he oh, sort of right. got into 3D computer comics, and but we definitely but, but, bonded about the, you know, both working for Harvey thing. Val, when you uh, start working for Harvey... Uh, were you aware of his comics? Did Joe turn you on? Like, what got you into wanting to draw for Harvey and, you know, draw memoir-type comics? I was aware of his work, but but not in any really comprehensive way. I, I, when, when did Harvey begin publishing? Around 70, 72, 73? Well, I, that- American Splendor, the first issue came out in 76, but he had been doing little bits here and there, yeah, since like the early 70s. Yeah, I was aware of the stuff, but I, I didn't really quite grasp it. I, I mean, I, I didn't get a, a grip on it because I didn't read it, really. I was aware of it. I heard people talking about it. Then I moved to New York, and once I was in there, I was in that you know maelstrom of activity and so forth, and I hadn't heard much about Harvey during, during those years. When I went back to Ohio and settled in Cleveland, I, I became more aware of his work. And once I actually started looking at it, 
and, and Joe mentioned that I could meet Harvey. It, it interested me very, very much. This is probably no news to anybody that really has followed any of my work, but I don't. I never really liked superhero stuff. I never really liked the, just what Harvey would call the genre garbage of comic books. And I, I really, I wanted to work with someone like Harvey. I uh, admire that kind of work. I think that kind of work is very valuable. I think it's underrated. And there's been a lot of people now that have, um, you know, kind of imitated what Harvey's done, but not nearly as well, I think, as Harvey has. So one or two people that I've come across have, but I thought Harvey's work, when it was really good, was 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 profound, and I, I was moved by his work, and so I wanted to do something like that. Just to get a little, uh, you know, for the people listening, just to give a heads up, like, what work had you done before you worked with Harvey? Had You, you had already had co-created Howard the Duck, is that correct? Right. Howard was created back in 73, and I had done a lot of, uh, oh, I'd done a lot of stuff. Because I didn't like superheroes and because I really didn't fit into that mold anyway, I was never even given a superhero um, assignment. And I did a lot of stuff that Marvel just, I guess what you would say, was on the margins of, of their mm-hmm. of their list of, of publications. I did uh, Thongor. I wanted – I wanted what, what I really wanted to do when I got into comics was do Conan the Barbarian. I, I love sword and sorcery stuff. And, of course, Barry Smith was working on it, so that was the end of that. And then when he, when he dropped mm-hmm. out. John Buscema uh, took over, and I wasn't about to try to compete with Buscema, who I admired so much. And so I, I did. They 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 kind of made up a couple of uh, sword and sorcery characters for me. Thongor was one. I did. Oh, who was the guy with the saber tooth tiger? Oh, Kazar. Kazar. Right. I did Kazar. Right. I did um, the the classic movie monster comics, uh, uh, the Mummy and uh, the Frankenstein monster. And I just kind of jumped around uh, on, on a lot of different books because you know, I, I didn't quite fit into any particular mold. Some of the writers, before working with Harvey, you always drew other people's stories. Is that correct? Uh, for the most part, uh, in the late 70s, when I was living in New York, I managed to get three of my own stories that I, that I wrote and illustrated for, for Heavy Metal Magazine. And they were full-colored, full-painted stories. I, I really was able to stretch in that and, and do what I wanted. And uh, the way heavy metal was, uh, the, the editorial uh, uh, you know, policy for heavy metal at the time was such that my, the, sto- the stuff I wanted to do fit in, it probably wouldn't fit in now, but it did then. I really liked doing that. And uh, I, I always tried to come up with, with stuff that I thought might work in comics, but I never really was, another uh, you know, confession here is I was never really a comic fan, a comics fan. I, I wanted to be an illustrator, and I there were certain you know genres that I wanted to illustrate, and comics was pretty much the first thing that broke for me that I that I enabled me to do that. I mean, when I got into, into comics in '72 and met Dan Atkins and Craig Russell, I didn't even know there was organized fandom. I didn't I didn't even know what that what that was. I, I didn't know there were huge conventions taking place in New York once a year. So when I got into this, it was a, it was a world uh, that was exciting for me and interesting, but it was also a world that I, I felt like, wow, this is something I'm, I'm just not, I'm not sure how into this I am, you know, because like I said, I wasn't a rabid fan of Spider-Man or, or the X-Men or any, right. anything like that. Val, and, you're reminding me that uh, I think it's almost a tradition for a, a lot of people who worked in comics early on, like in, you know, even from the 30s through the 70s, that it was always felt like it was a secondary job or a secondary career for a lot of artists and illustrators that wanted to get real work, but then settled for comic book work in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, comics at that time was just emerging 
from the status of being the bottom of the barrel. You know, mm-hmm. people were starting to pay attention. People outside of the business and outside of the uh, outside of the fandom were starting to pay attention to comics back in the seventies because it was like what seventy eight when the first Superman movie uh, emerged, and then that that um, I think started Hollywood began paying attention to comics, and um, but for the most part. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I, I intended to use comics as a stepping stone, but I, like I said, it was the first thing that broke for me. And right. I, I, what I, what I learned with comics, and what I learned, I learned a great deal. I, I worked with Neil Adams at Continuity for about a year and a half when I went to, oh. and I learned a great deal about uh, getting commercial work, especially storyboard work. It was just invaluable um, uh, knowledge and experience, which came, which um, uh, I, I came to utilize uh, a decade later. It seems like the '70s was very groundbreaking for a lot of comics going independent and doing weird and new things. You know, there was a, there was a decade of Marvel superheroes, which was about anti-establishment superhero comics, and then it just broke open. And then we had comics like American Splendor happening. So you co-create Howard the Duck. Is there any connection whatsoever, the fact that Howard the Duck, you know, is from Cleveland, and then later on you're working on uh, American Splendor, you know, Harvey Peeker, who lives in Cleveland? Uh, no connection that I know of. That was just just came out of Steve. I don't even know if Steve knew anything about Cleveland. I mean, Cleveland was the butt of many jokes back then because, you know, the uh, the river had caught on fire, you know, at one point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I'm not like a huge Clevophile or anything, but Cleveland is a really is a great small city. I like that city. It, it, it's a, it's a good town. Um, if you live there for any length of time, you you find there's a lot going on that's really interesting. I've lived all over the country, and and I and I still have somewhat of an affection for Cleveland. I hate the climate. I mean, I, I I'll never move back there. My son is a doctor, and he works there. And um, it, at the University Hospitals of Cleveland, and I've, you know, I visit him. And I, I when I was li- living there, I did a lot of uh, regional theater work. I used to be an actor, and uh, Cleveland holds some, you know, fairly fond memories for me. Um, and, but anyway, why Steve chose Cleveland, I have no idea. Uh, and and the fact that Harvey's in Cleveland, you know, totally unrelated. It wasn't almost called uh, Harvey the Duck. <laughs> no. Okay, so you split. You go. Back to Ohio, correct? Right. And at some point, you met up with Joe Zabel. You're aware of American Splendor, the comic. And and as you said earlier, it looked like something that was important, right? Like an important kind of comic uh, that, that had emerged uh, in the 70s or the mid-70s. And you decided you wanted to illustrate some stories. So what was it like meeting Harvey? Did, did you actually physically meet him? or on the phone, like, like how that all happened? No, I physically met Harvey. Harvey wanted to work with people face to face, if at all possible. Um, I would meet with Harvey every time th- that he had a story idea. He, we would, we would meet, he would go over the story with me. He would have little stick figures written on just, you know, typing paper, just right. scrawled on there with some, with um, all the captions and balloons that he needed to be there, uh, you know, the number of panels per page that he felt was was necessary, and then let me run with it. As long as all the words were there and as long as the story was being told the way he wanted it to be told, if I wanted to change a POV or do a close-up or, or a long shot of something, he left that up to me. How do you respond to your artwork? Because I have a quick story where, I, you know, I tried to show uh, – I sent him some of my artwork unsolicited and because i was pursuing superheroes as well as you know kind of an indie style 
I always was worried that he would reject me because I had superhero leanings and you had actually been published by Marvel Comics and, you know, created a character for Marvel. How did he respond to your artwork when he first saw it? Well, he was very skeptical at first, very skeptical. He, he, he and his and his uh, his wife, Joyce, came to my studio. I was sharing. I had a studio space in, in outside of Cleveland in a place called Lakewood. And um, Harvey came to the studio and I had a lot of my artwork um, hanging on the walls there that was all the, a lot of non-comic book stuff. I had some stuff of, of some drawings of some um, Vietnam soldiers. It was, you know, a very, very um, documentary style of, 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 of drawing. And he looked at that and we talked and he wanted to make it very clear that he wanted no indication that I was a Marvel artist. You know, he wanted he wanted uh, himself to look like himself uh he wanted and joyce made it very clear she didn't want to be glamorized and uh i said look guys i i, I got gotcha. you I, I don't worry <laughs> uh, and when i did the first story and he he was sold he saw right away that that i wasn't gonna cross any boundaries that i was going to give him what he wanted so it sounds aesthetically you you all were on the same page because again you were not as you know, you, you didn't dig superheroes as much either. They didn't want to look like superheroes, although you did have leanings toward fantasy, as as you said previously. Yeah. yeah. But um, this obviously, you know, scratched a certain itch that I, I don't know if you were looking for, but you were able to, to immerse yourself in and be able to work on this and then get getting covers as well. Was Crumb, Josh, was Crumb also contributing to the issues that Val drew at the time? Um, not very much at that point. Right. Okay. But um, it must have been interesting also to like pick up an issue and see who you were sharing, you know, art duties with. You know, did you did you hang out with any of the other artists that were local? The only guy that I met personally was Gary Dumb. Really a nice guy. Really a good guy. And um, cool. very dependable. Um, um, he wasn't Harvey's strongest artist, but he was really dependable. And, you know, he always could could uh, give something toward, you know, give work to Gary if, if, um, if something got backed up or, or he somebody else, you know, couldn't do it you know or but uh, there were there were all the other artists lived in cleveland at the time but i never i never ran into them no did you ever you know in the five issues you you drew did you ever take liberties with this story and and see how how harvey responded or did he ever reject anything no no not at all i i you know i'm i'm, I'm a very collaborative guy you know having been an actor you know uh, unless you're a stand-up comedian, or you're doing, you're trying to do one-man shows all the time. You really have to work with people on a, on stage or in a film or a TV show. You've got a director who ultimately, it's not it's not a democracy. Ultimately, the director is going to have the final word. You've got other actors that you you want to be on the same page with. You you, you want to make sure that they understand where you're coming from and you understand where they're coming from. And and you put something together that's bigger than all of you. You know, and that's and I'm not, I'm not preaching that's that's you know the way to make the world go round and we're all BP, but I'm just saying it's uh, it that works for me. I, no, I, I feel I, the same way. I feel like there is an art to collaboration, and some people can't handle it. I mean, lucky for me and Josh, and and even I don't know about your all your career, Val, but I have projects that are more auteur oriented, one man shows, and then in the collaborations, I yield to the to the collaboration. You know, you're making something together. Uh, having said that, did you? Did you take pictures of Harvey? Because I based my original first, you know, collaboration with Harvey based on other people's interpretation of him in the comic book. 
I'd only seen him on uh, David Letterman, but I didn't, you know, base my my uh, portrait of him at the time on that. I I slowly evolved my portrait, having met the man and and working with with him. But did you take pictures, or how, how did you evolve your portrait of Harvey? There were a couple of stories that I did take. Very, um, I very conscientiously took very specific pictures uh, because um, I, I knew I needed to get this reference correct. And um, there was another artist that worked for him that was that was very, very uh, heavily uh, dependent. Upon, I don't want to say dependent upon me, like he was an inferior artist, but he he really utilized photography a great deal. I forget the guy's name. It was Jerry oh, uh, Shamray. Jerry Shamray. Uh, yes, Shamray. And Shamray, some of Shamray's drawings of Harvey were so damn good that I just used those sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, and I did take pictures for a couple of different uh, different um, stories. And and I and of course those pictures were able to serve me throughout with other stories as well. Um, I have to ask because this was an issue for me when I first started working with Harvey. Um, he didn't pay all that much uh, <laughs> per page, and you're coming from you know, Marvel and working with the big publishers, was that hard for you to take a, it must've been like a pretty big pay cut to work with Harvey. Was it worth it just because what you were doing, you believed in a lot more than some of that other stuff? Exactly. I knew exactly what I was getting into with Harvey. I knew he didn't pay, you know, a lot, but I'll tell you one thing, he paid you immediately upon receipt of the art. It wasn't like, <laughs> it wasn't like, well, wait till I make a deposit or how about next week? No, no. I showed up with the pages and I got the money. And right. That counts. Yeah. And, um, you know, no, it wasn't a lot, but, you know, for some reason, it never, it's just none of those, none of those jobs ever seemed like a lot of work to me. I, I just liked doing them. I kind of sandwiched them in between other jobs and, you know, a th two or three pages here, then set it aside for, and then two or three pages later. And it all seemed, it all, it all just seemed to be almost like found money. You know, it, it was not, um, an, an effort that I felt like I wasn't getting compensated for at all. Did well, you ever hang what, out with Harvey? No, I didn't. Har Harvey was very uh, kind to me and respectful. Uh, Harvey, uh, it's not like I felt like he he just didn't warm up to me or anything, but I I think Harvey just was would wonder what in the world we would have in common other than his book. And and I I could say from from my point of view, um Harvey and I our worldviews were probably a universe apart except for a respect for literature. Um, I, I really shared that with him. We would talk about, you know, the, the Russian author, the Russian, you know, great Russian writers and, um, and, you know, some of the more, um, serious critiques of his work and criticism that appeared in, in, um, like, I think New York magazine or, or, or the New York, uh, B review of books and, you know, and the, the authors, short story authors that he would be compared to. And um, we would we would talk about that briefly whenever I would, you know, turn in some art or pick up a, a script. I, you know, that's what drew me to the stuff in the first place was that, you know, because when it comes down to it, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a snob. I mean, I, I and but I'm a snob. When, if you somebody asked if somebody asked me what, do you, what what's really important to you in terms of 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 art or literature or, or music, then I'm going to sound like a snob. But on the other hand, you know, I love the Three Stooges. So, I mean, I can go as lowbrow as, sure. as as you want. But if you're going to say, okay, what do you really think is good? I'm not going to say, oh, that latest thing that Frank Miller did was brilliant with Batman. No, no, sorry. It just, I, I just, I don't rave about that stuff. It, it's, it, and it's, it's good for what it is. 
Um, I, I'm, many people have had great success with that, that sort of thing. Great. I, I'm, not, I'm not putting it down. Um, I can't embrace it the way I, I would normally embrace um, what I've been taught, at least, was, was good literature. I still reread. I mean, I try to read you know, contemporary stuff. Some of it's okay, and some of it's pretty good. But for the most part, I always find myself going back and rereading short stories by Fitzgerald and, uh, and uh, Sherwood Anderson and Jorge Luis Borges, all these people which I think just get into a deeper, a deeper well. If I could just switch gears and get to the connection with the movie, which I assume that you saw. Yes. So you did a story called A Marriage Album, um, which was a collaboration, might have been the first collaboration between Joyce and Harvey that you illustrated. And as I'm sure you know, a number of scenes from that were lifted and used, adapted into into the key scene in the movie where Joyce connects with Harvey. So. I'm just curious to know sort of how that came about because, uh, you know, you, that story is almost a wordless story. It has like, a, you know, a bunch of conversation at the beginning and the end, like kind of a bookend. But the key moments of of Joyce and Harvey's developing relationship was shown so much through your artwork and very little in terms of dialogue. But then in the film, it was very dialogue heavy. But uh, I'm I'm just curious about how that story came about and, and what it was like working with both of them and any other thoughts about that? Well, uh, the story came about, I mean, I mean, Harvey just approached me to do that story the way he did with any, any other story. You know, here's the story. And I think the only difference was that, you know, Joyce was, was collaborative on it as well and, and was, was um, uh, contributing things. And, um, you know, I don't know if you know Joyce. Have you met Joyce? Do you know Joyce? Yeah, we both know her pretty well. Yeah, Joyce can be a little grating, you know, <laughs> at times. Um, and and Joyce was, you know, being extraordinarily. Now don't do this, and make sure you do that, and don't. Do, in fact, I, I can recall where she was going on about something, and and, and she was, I, I was in one spot, and she was like three or four feet away from me, and then Harvey was behind her. And Harvey was just like waving his hands like, oh, man, I wish he'd shut up. You know? <laughs> and, you know, and finally it would be Joyce, leave Val alone. You know, he knows what you're talking about, you know. <laughs> and um, but other than that, that that story was it obviously meant something to to him. You know, this was this, you know, Harvey had been married twice before. And I think that despite some of their they're both they're both strong personalities. But despite that, I think Harvey realized this was the most important relationship in his life. And uh, he wanted to, he wanted to tell that to to the people that read his stuff. You know, he wanted to be very uh, forthright with that. That's really insightful. I like I like that. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I like I said, I, I never hung out with Harvey, but I, I the thing about Harvey is he's he has absolutely no pretense. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no mask at all. There's no there's no social Harvey, and then the personal Harvey, uh, at least that I could tell. That's absolutely uh, right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they also one of my covers was also on the on the uh, on the in the movie as well, and and I found that movie to be really charming and really 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 hit the right notes with Harvey uh, as far as Harvey's life is concerned. I, I I think he was pretty satisfied with it. I certainly thought it was it was marvelous. Did you have any knowledge of it being in production, or like did they connect contact you at all regarding that particular scene, or you know what was your sort of awareness of the movie as it was in production and then when it came out? I, I, no, I was not privy to anything. Um, I had heard rumors about it and then somebody, uh, sent me something on email regarding it. 
I don't know how I don't know if I contacted Harvey and asked him what was up with that or not, because I hadn't worked for Harvey for quite some time at that point. I was living in Oregon at the time and hadn't talked to her. I saw Harvey at a, at a San Diego con in in, um, in t- 2003. And that was the last time I saw him in person. And at that point, he had already done the book with uh, my our cancer year, Frank Stack Illustrated. And at the time, he just, I think most of his work was being done. Most of his stories were being illustrated by, by Stack at the time. I, I mentioned to him that I'd love to work for him again. And, and he said, yeah, I'll keep that in mind. But I never, I never heard anything. Why, why did you only do five issues at the time? Like, what, when you did your last story, was there uh, any reason that you, you stopped drawing American Splendor or you just had other gigs? You know, I don't remember exactly. And I, I, I do recall that in the late 80s, I, I was going through some personal stuff myself with a, a divorce. And uh, I wanted to uh, leave Cleveland and go to the West Coast. And uh, that was that precipitated some problems in my marriage. And I think it was things like that that were keeping me. You know, I was I was just I just wanted I just wanted gigs that made money because I was planning to leave town and, and you know, and change my life pretty, you know, pretty profoundly. So right, 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 right. I'm, I'm now that you and now that you asked me that I really never thought about why I stopped working for Harvey, but I'm sure that had something to do with it. Um, that, sure. that was, yeah. So when you saw the movie for the first time, was it kind of a thrill to see that scene brought to life? And did it bring you back to uh, working on that um, story? Yes, it did. But I'm telling you, the one that really uh, impressed me and moved me the most was the Alice Quinn story. I'm so glad they chose that one because that Alice Quinn story was that when I that was one of the first stories of Harvey that I read. And when I first met him, I told him, I said, this is this is really brilliant. This is so simple, but so deep. And he goes, yeah, well, thanks. You know, but and I'm really glad that I don't know if it was his choice or the director's choice, the filmmaker's choice to use that story. But I really uh, was glad to see that. Yeah, I agree with you. That was the, actually the scene right before your scene. So yeah, yeah, you just, exactly, yeah. You just where we're talking about that scene and and both comparing, you know, the original story illustrated by Sue Cavey with the way that they pulled it off in the film. And yeah, they really captured it. I have an amazing anecdote about Harvey and Howard the Duck. Yes, yes. It was in the late 80s, maybe the maybe the mid 80s. An editor from Marvel, Jim Salakrup, called me up and he said, uh, listen, uh, Val, I, I've got a great idea. I said, OK, what? He said, well, Harvey, Harvey's from Cleveland and you live in Cleveland now. And and Howard the Duck's from Cleveland. And I think it would be a great idea for you and Harvey to work on a Howard the Duck story. <laughs> and and I and I said, that is quite an anomalous thing to even consider. I said, but he said, well, would you talk to Harvey? I said, well, why don't you talk to Harvey? Well, you know him. And, you know, I, I really I don't know if I could sell him on the idea, but you know him and he trusts you. And uh, I think it would just be terrific if he I said, well, OK. And I called Harvey the next evening and Harvey was literally offended. by <laughs> <laughs> He said, I don't do that kind of stuff. What are they talking about? I hate this. You know, and um, and so I, 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 he just made that very clear that he he had no interest in this. He said, and I called uh, Salakrup the next day. I says, Jim, it's a no go. I mean, it's, it's just a non-starter. Uh, Harvey feels like this is not at all what he's about. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He goes, yeah, but you've got it. And he said, yeah, could you please try one more time and blah, blah, blah. And I said, 
all right, one more time and that's it. I said, I don't want to totally alienate myself from Harvey, you know. So uh, I called him again and he just said, do you realize that, that would make me seem like uh, an opportunist of the first water? I can't do this. This is not what I'm about. You know, that crap guy is going to get himself into big trouble. If he would hire me, I'd, I'd, I'd tell him well, they're all full of shit, you know. <laughs> so, and um, so that was the end of that. But um, I often wonder if he if he if we ever could have talked him into that, what in the world we would have come up with. Yeah. Well, I would love to see what you guys come question. I will, if I may offer, many, many years later, I guess Harvey warmed up to the idea because he did write three franchise characters. We, he and I collaborate, collaborated on a Bizarro story for DC Comics in a Bizarro anthology. We also worked together on the Michael Chabon's The Escapist for Dark Horse. Oh, wow. Uh, which was really actually jarring because he kind of admits in the story having attempted suicide, which is nuts. It's a superhero story. And he's on a bus with a superhero revealing that he uh, was suicidal. And then the third one, which I'm really bummed out about, was he wrote The Thing of the Fantastic Four about being Jewish. And it's Harvey and The Thing talking on the street. And I believe Ty Templeton drew that uh, for a Marvel anthology. And the thing is my favorite character, and I always I wish I had drawn that story, but Ty did a great job. So he did warm up to the idea many years later. Yeah, he he did. I think he I think after the film came out, and he realized that all, you know, um, that all commercial media was not it was not evil, <laughs> not evil. <laughs> yeah, that it, yeah, that it that it that, it, that, it, that it, there was more dimension to it than he probably he had given it credit for. That you know there there were there were ways you could expand upon these things. You could take one of these silly characters, but but do something a little more interesting with it. As time goes on, as I get older and reflect back on on you know people I've known in my career, he is definitely one of the more interesting and, and the more j just enigmatic people I've ever known. Really, I mean, like I yeah. said, he is. When Harvey, you, you you get what you see. You, you, but on the other hand, you know what made that guy, you know, commit himself to that work for virtually, you know, for for so long he went really unrecognized. And you know, working that drudgery of of working as as a file clerk, you know, that that could be soul killing if you didn't have something going for you underneath, you know, which he obviously had. Absolutely. Well, listen, this has been wonderful, and thanks for sharing your stories about Harvey and American Splendor and, and some of your career. Thanks so much, Val. My your insights into I, working with Harvey were really, really interesting, too. Yeah, my pleasure. I, Harvey is someone that should be talked about and not forgotten. I was only too happy to do it, believe me. Well, that was very, very cool of Val to join us. And now, back to the episode. All right, so then let's in this podcast talking about blind dates blind dates okay you want to hear about well do you have any kind of fun blind dates i have one that i'm going to actually read to everybody. oh yeah i want to hear that it's fun but did you want to talk about not necessarily blind date but a very important date uh me and my mother were on do you want to start with that <laughs> yeah so you funnily enough you and your mother were on my first date with my wife sari um <laughs> Which is so surreal to think, and I feel like your mom also was on the like a subsequent date that I uh, had with Sari because when Sari and I, my wife Sari Wilson, the accomplished novelist, uh, were first dating, we actually both worked at the Nation magazine. And what were you doing? What was she doing? I was 
an employee there working in the business side, selling back issues and t-shirts and doing a lot of general office stuff. And she was an intern, an editorial intern working on the editorial side. And we met, we both had gone to Oberlin College. And, and you used your position of power. I used my position to, you know, force <laughs> her into a romantic relationship. <laughs> Me too. And no, we, we, you know, we were friends, we became friends, and then we hung out a little bit here and there. And then she and I went on dates, but they were like friend dates, you know mm-hmm. how it is. Yeah, so Sari and I, we, after becoming friends, we decided to go out, uh, and I, I guess I wanted to uh, make it a little easier on myself, um, not make too much pressure on her, and also combine it with her meeting some of my friends. So I don't remember how it all worked out, but you and I were going to meet up, and she came along, and your mom was in town. Do you remember the details? I don't remember why I was on your first official date with <laughs> yeah. Sari, you know, although... Sure, why not? You know, like, uh, maybe that, that speaks to our friendship in some yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, we often met each other's girlfriends, obviously. And but a first date, we're like, out together. did you know is your first official date? You said you've been going out as friends. I think I thought about it that way, and did I don't happen, think Sari did. Did something happen at the end of the date that made it like, oh, we're dating now? No, definitely not. Definitely not. Okay. It was the first time that I think we took it beyond the offices of the Nation magazine and said, let's go out and do something. Right. You know? So right. in my mind, that was a big deal. To right. Sari, probably it was like, yeah, whatever, you know, right. going out with some coworkers. Sure. And but, because my mom knew you growing up. Right. You know, I've known me, your mom since I was 14, 15 years she, old. I don't remember. She was probably living in the Catskills at the time. was probably in the city. Let's go eat lunch. Oh, dinner and... There's Josh, and uh, I'm going to... Is that the first time I met curly-haired Sarah? curly-haired girl. Yeah, that was the first time you met her oh, as well, okay. so I then believe. The, you were just probably introducing us to this girl you liked. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. You know? So that's probably what the sensibility behind it all was. Right. And it just turned out in history... Yeah. That was your first official exactly. date. Exactly. Got it. So, okay. and it became a source of loving joking that your mom would pull right. on me once in a while. She'd be like, Josh, I remember I was on you and Sari's first date. That's you right. know. But yeah, it was a good thing you guys were there because since I was in sexy Harvey mode, That's right. you know, having you guys as chaperones. I remember you were swinging your leg and your arm mm-hmm, a lot. Whistling, <laughs> coughing. <laughs> Belching. <laughs> but I do all that anyway. That's true. Yeah. Uh, was there any other instances of blind dates or kind of like... Yes. Yeah, so before all this, mm. before Sari came along, mm-hmm. you know, just to Make sure everyone knows that. Mm-hmm. When I was at The Nation magazine, mm-hmm. this political journal of uh, literary progressives, they had a classified section in the back, which is, you know, the tiny little type ads for all sorts of various yep. things and trading pets, stuff pets back sitters. and forth, all of that sort of <laughs> stuff. They even had a personal section. Mm. And so this was where, you know, these lonely progressives could meet up with each other and create lots of other little progressives. So I would, being a single, hip, young, swinging nation employee. Was, but identified as lonely by your staff members. Well, it was just required, yeah. Oh, I mean, okay. You know, it was part of the job description. <laughs> yeah, I was, you know, I'd moved back to New York. I was single, young in the city kind of thing, but having trouble meeting folks, mm. being a shy, sort of reclusive type. Because you had gone to Oberlin. I'd gone to Oberlin, yeah. Right. Okay. Right. I'd gone away to school. Mm-hmm. So here I was, uh, single, and had this option of running a free singles ad at The Nation. And so I wrote up something. My God, what did you say? 
<laughs> I've got to find the you actual ad. I'm sure I have it somewhere. If I do find it, I'll post it. We'll post it on the scene by scene website. But it did mention something about dancing to funky music. And I, I remember I put that in because all the other ads were so dry. Uh-huh. You know, they were like, well, I'm someone who, you know, I'm a uh, red diaper baby who's, um, God, you know, Josh, uh, I hate this. loves I hate... The li- to read the lives of Mao. And, you know, no, no, no. So no, anyway, no. I, I made mine a little more. And they probably want to do long a little more walks. energy. They wanted long walks. Yeah, and all, you wanted to dance. Always. Yeah, exactly. There, there's the difference. So, yeah, I posted that in there and it became something that like everybody at the nation knew about and enjoyed. They were rooting for you. Yeah, they were rooting for me. Exactly. And I did get a fair number of responses to my ad. Um, right. And, it, you know, the whoever like sorted the mail would always be like, Josh, you got a couple of responses. Oh, boy. Tell I wonder how many people in, in the who worked there was writing some fake responses. Oh, what? No, huh? no, that would never happen. Bursting bubbles. Oh, man. But the, yeah, the, so the only, I did go on a couple of dates. None of them really turned out much to, you know, it was, didn't get past the, um, the family restaurant stage. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the one response I did get that I didn't even have the courage to respond to was from like a 45-year-old woman. Mm-hmm. I was 21, mm-hmm. 20, 20 or 21, telling me that she, you know, would enjoy uh, those funky dancing and could teach me a few things about the arts of love. Josh, that's the comic <laughs> I want to read. <laughs> I definitely have her letter somewhere, so maybe I can dig that one up, too. How old do you think she is now? Well, uh, or is she even alive? Yeah, I mean, gosh, it's hundreds of years ago. But what about you? Do you have any similar sort of uh, dating experiences? I, I remember when Nerve.com started. Yes. And that was crazy. Uh, I remember going on a lot of different could you call them dates or <laughs> you tell me conquests i, I <laughs> well, think i was being conquered oh i see to be honest and actually I've, i wrote up a, a funny little essay about one of the dates Ooh. but you know what let's save it for next episode oh, a little teaser yeah all right okay but you promise i promise you're gonna, you'll share it i have it right here in my hand oh boy <laughs> okay well then uh, maybe we should wrap things up <laughs> Yeah, that seems like a good place to stop and yep. get people tune in next week. So remember, you can visit us at seenbyscenepodcast.com and Seen by Scene on Facebook, where you can subscribe and download past episodes, read up on the show, check out our work, including all things Harvey Picard, join the discussion. And you know, we have a store. We have mm-hmm. like a merch section. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know some of the things that we can that we offer? Yep. Copies of your books, my books, um, Harvey's stuff, various American Splendor anthologies. You're selling some original art. Got some original Harvey Picard American Splendor art on there. Hopefully Dean's going to put some of his stuff up at some point. But we'll see. Anyway, you know, check that stuff out. And until next time, when we'll be discussing episode number 18, this is Josh Neufeld. And Dean Haspiel. And we are Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. (laughs) 